This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got Phil Dugan. From the Access Law Group, yeah. Strata lawyer, father of how many Eight. children? Eight kids. Wow. That's like a, that's like a family that's, that uh, grew up in the 1900s on a farm outside of that's Gimli, where you're, you're, Manitoba. You're, you're, you're having kids because you need help. You need butter churned. That is, that's the level of that. Like, I, that's something we had, you know, what's um, five kids, one condo, Adrian Crook. Five kids is insane. That's, I mean, an insane. that's an incredible amount of number. But eight. eight. How does this guy do it? I don't know. He's a really bright guy, you can tell. Yeah. Um, he's got a lot of energy. He's got a lot of energy. Anyways, I'm, I like the podcast almost should have just been about the eight kids. Well, that's but, what next week is. Yeah. <laughs> we're, yeah. we're bringing Phil back. We're bringing Phil back. Anyway, so we've got a great interview with Phil There's a lot of useful information here. Phil is talking about strata windups, essentially. Right. So strata is dissolving, um, whether they're being bought by developers um, or if there's a huge assessment coming and the strata just has to disband and collect money and move on. But it's obviously something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast because, you know, say something like the West End, right. the official community plan there. There's a lot of stratas from the 60s, 70s, 80s here that are, you know, right. the economic life of a lot of their systems are coming due. So, and, uh, and it's, it's really interesting too, because what comes out of this interview is, well, it's a lot of things. It's super useful information. 
But at the end, Phil kind of talks about from an investment perspective, things to kind of keep your eye out for. If you were looking, not only as a developer, but somebody to invest in a building that With might the be With development potential, right? Yeah, and exactly. that's what we're always looking for on this podcast. So, so yeah, no, it's a fantastic interview. But uh, yeah, Adam, what's uh, what's new with you? You're looking kind of uh, pleasantly plump. <laughs> okay, jeez. I'm shaped like why what is with the body shaming on this show it's gotten it's gotten out of control and it should be always directed towards Braden um it's crazy that the skinniest oh Oh. god ouch ouch but uh yeah I'm uh well no I'm pleasantly plump still tired but uh the proud owner of a Fitbit watch yeah this is I just saw it and I I feel healthy it looks like it was one of those buys where a couple guys at the office decide they are all gonna get in shape well one guy had it first so this this was okay so basically guy who sits next to me at the office had a fitbit watch his uh his it's got something called and i I just learned about this vo2 max you ever heard about this i have not but I it's try the to avoid it's the things. measure it's the measure that they use when so like an olympic athlete um you know say you're, you're, michael, you're phelps. michael phelps yeah quintessential it's like the only one we know yeah uh but your michael phelps probably would have like a vo2 max of I don't know, call it like 60 or 70 or something really high. Maybe but what like is that? 80 is that or 90. like a heart rate? It's, it's, I think it has to do with how the oxygen is used in your body while you're working out. So it's like an efficiency measure. It's all. It's pretty much an efficiency measure. So, you how, know. How you do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, this guy in my you're office smelling has. smelling burnt toast as we speak. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a stroke and a seizure at the same time. But I, he actually, this guy at our office has a, a really, really high VO2 max score. So I put mine on and he was in, I think it was like good, great, like in between good, great. Near or Olympic something. athlete. Yeah, near Olympic athlete. Not quite, but really good and i was like man that's impressive so when i got mine i put it on and i was somewhere between uh good and like very good okay so i was oh, i was that's like, not bad no i think it was actually it actually hadn't measured yeah. your body yet though no <laughs> okay okay easy um but anyway so what i did was uh i so then i i was wearing it for a few days and i was kind of actually feeling bad about that because i was way less than he was and i was thinking oh god like he's older than me you know i thought he was in worse shape than me yeah so then I went to the for a run at the gym the other morning and literally like I got off the treadmill and I looked at the watch and it went like recalibrating like it was it was it was and, it, and you were now, thinking you're going up. Uh, yeah, I thought I was going up. Turns out uh, now I'm like poor <laughs> poor to very poor. No, I'm between I'm not that bad, but I'm between average to poor. So now I'm now I'm I've got a doctor's wow. appointment. <laughs> And I'm uh, I, I'm going to be living on a treadmill. So, anyways, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, and uh, I got to get this health check. Oh. Jeez, so I can't even. Man, you don't. So, you don't so have would you to suggest watch, getting one of these? Yeah, this no, is my worst nightmare. No, and the other thing is, I can read text. I've been noticing. I've been distracted driving with this thing. I so I had to turn off the te- the text receiving function. I had to turn it off. This thing's going to kill me. <laughs> yeah, but Matt, what else do we got? What else do we have? We have our listings promotion running to the end of the year. It's mid-October now. Absolutely. Um, Get know, in we're touch. We're in the, the heat of the fall market here. And uh, we appreciate everybody who's already reached out. That's for sure. It's, that's for sure. It's fantastic. So, so what does is, what is our listings promotion entail? Well, we'll come. We'll give you a custom market analysis and marketing plan, and we'll get you the best price possible. 
But wait, there's more. There is. There's. Uh, we do give a little bit back at the at the end of the transaction here. There's an our incentive. website actually has more details on this Absolutely. over at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. Yeah, and go because we've revamped the website. So if you actually go check out the the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast website, uh, you will see that there. It's super easy to navigate now. And it's also better to get in touch. I mean, one of the things, we've had tons of people reaching out, but one of the things that we've noticed is people are like, you got to slash PCS, these types of things. Just make it more difficult for people to reach out. Now we got big buttons. It's impossible not to go to our website and find exactly what you're looking for very quickly. Absolutely. So if you want to get in touch, click the green button. If you want to sign up for PCS, Private Client Services, the best research tool out there, click the orange button. And if you want to be kept informed about upcoming podcasts and pre-sale opportunities, click the blue button. That's for sure. So Matt, without further ado, why don't we cut to our interview with Phil Dugan? Enjoy, guys. Okay, so we're here with Phil Dugan, Strata Lawyer with Access Law Group. How are you, Phil? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great. So, Phil, can you start maybe by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yes, I, I'm uh, 51 years old, poor old soul, but I came to the <laughs> law quite late in life. <laughs> um, I was 38 when I went to law school, which actually I think turned out to be a, a huge benefit, quite honestly, because... The more life experience you have, I think, the more you understand the law, because I I discovered the law to really be a study of life, you know, and how we use the law in our society. I don't think we really consciously think about that, um, but we really use the law so that we can live as best a life we can. Um, And in Canada, I think generally we do an extremely good job of that for the most part. And certainly, if you get to travel and go to the third world, for example, and see the absence of a a lawful society and an ordered society, you can much more appreciate uh, how much we have here in Canada. So I come to the law um, very much with that appreciation that it is generally a very good thing. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of lawyers' jokes to tell you that it's maybe not such a good thing. (laughs) It's also some realtor jokes. Yes, quite, quite, yes, exactly. Um, But I think the alternative is far worse. And so... I come with a mentality that um, having been around the block a little bit before I became a lawyer, um, I like to see myself in law um, as being a problem solver. You know, people don't come to me and pay a fortune, quite honestly, to fix problems that they could fix themselves. So these are the harder things that it needs, you know, some creativity and some clear thinking um, to think through something that you can't just sort of fix overnight, you know? Um, So I love that about my job. Other than that, I've been married to the same woman for 27 years, and we have eight children, six daughters, and two sons. Eight children. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So that's that's why I'm at work so much. (laughs) We we should be interviewing you about your your work-life balance. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Maybe don't ask me about contraception, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so Phil question for you because it sounds like you're you're pretty high minded and a lot of ideals here we have you on uh, to talk about stratas and and winding up a strata or dissolving a strata 
I'm curious, yes. how did you get into that kind of subsection of law? Yes, um, that was perhaps I had the easiest entry into law that anyone has ever had. Um, and it's primarily because the chap that I have mostly worked with is a longtime friend of mine. I've known him for probably 30 years or more. And um, it just so happened that after I had been in law school for precisely four days, he approached me and he said, Phil, he said, I hear you're in law school. I said, yes, I've successfully completed my first week in law school. <laughs> and he said, that's great. He said, would you like a job? <laughs> <laughs> And so that's how I got the job I have. <laughs> and uh, Jamie Blay, who is the person that I work with uh, for all these years, um, he, by happenstance, had ended up in straddle law. So that's why I ended up in straddle law as well. Uh, but I, I must say, it's an area of law that it, uh, I mean, we call it family law for groups, okay? Um, because it becomes awfully contentious many, many times. So right. you've got to enjoy it. Uh, otherwise, you would never do it. Because it intrigues me that we've got, you know, north of 30,000 strata corporations in British Columbia, probably over 2 million people who live in them. And yet, if you canvass the lawyers in this province, there's probably only 20 or 30 of us who do strata laws or primary focus. So clearly it's, there's a huge need for it, yeah. but apparently not that many people want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's funny, Phil, we've talked a lot about kind of reading strata minutes and trying to get a sense of the culture of a building and, and you know, if there's some problems in there. Uh, I've never thought of uh, dissolving a strata though as almost like a divorce, but it is. It's essentially dividing up the, you know, the home. Yes. And oh, absolutely. In fact, I, I mean, even just in the, the the micro element of this, we often will talk um, to owners who have got a very contentious issue um, that somebody selling and moving could be a very good part of the solution. Um, to any of these problems. So, you know, we, we use it all the time, whether it's an individual unit or whether we're contemplating the whole thing um, as a way to walk away from a bigger problem. And so, for example, in the, the winding up situation, often the two choices that Estrada is facing is either winding up the strata and moving on or taking on a huge repair. Right, and it's a question of which one is actually worth doing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and of course, you within any group of people, you'll have very different opinions as to which one's the more valuable option. You know, and as I often will say at strata meetings, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I have a hard enough time getting on with my wife, never mind with a hundred complete strangers. <laughs> so you know, we're going to have a lot of uh, diverse opinions, you know, on any given topic, right? So I suppose the the government's intention when they changed the, the regulations about these sort of situations was they were hoping they could get to that slightly more no-fault divorce, shall we say, rather than having what previously was required to be you know, total um, equanimity and, and everybody unanimously voting to wind up a, um, a building, right? So right. they're trying to make it a bit easier, um, but that doesn't automatically make all divorces easy, you know? Phil, so can we maybe just back up here for some of our listeners and and get a maybe a, a working definition of strata dissolution? Like, what is a, a dissolution or a wind up? 
Yes, um, I think it's it's easy if you think about it in terms of what it is that you created in the first place, and then that makes it easy to understand what you're doing in reverse. If you imagine, you know, just a piece of property, bare land, um, a farmer's field, uh, we're used to the idea that a developer will come along and buy that farmer's field and develop it into a subdivision, right? And they'll put in the roads and, and the streetlights and what have you, and then folks may come along and build their individual houses. So a subdivision, we're, we're used to that concept. A strata plan is essentially a different form of subdivision that often, of course, also subdivides the land vertically as well as horizontally because we're used to, in particularly in Vancouver here, that uh, a developer buys a small piece of property but builds an enormous tower on top of it. So what basically the strata plan does when you deposit it in the land title office is it takes that single parcel of land and divvies it up into all the strata lots that will then be built into a tower, in, the, in my example there. So you're, you're literally creating parcels of land that are parallel to you know, airspace at the original filing of the of the plan because the building is not built, um, and uh, so it's it's a way of subdividing a small piece of property into many many units. So when you're winding up, it's essentially legally the opposite process. You're taking all those subdivided units and you're making them back into a single parcel again. Uh, which may or may not include the, the destruction of the building, quite honestly. It might be that you wind up the strata and uh, a, a new developer comes along and buys the whole building, does a bit of refurbishing and turns it into an apartment building. But the point would be that it goes from having many owners back to having essentially a single owner again. So that that's the idea in legal theory. And so we hear about this occurring all the time. Can you just run us through a few of the reasons why uh, strata owners would want uh, this dissolution process to occur? Yes. Um, well, I mentioned already the idea that there's there's sometimes a huge bill um, looming, right? That arises because Section 72 of the Strata Property Act says a strata corporation must repair and maintain its building. Uh, so you really, at law, have no choice. You've got to spend the money. And if your building envelope starts to deteriorate and you know the whole building is now leaky, um, the bills are enormous right. um, to fix, depending on the size and scale. But you're always talking about millions, quite honestly. Uh, so then comes the question, well, is it worth repairing? The building, you know, because we know in Vancouver, for example, the land is always worth a fortune, but on your tax appraisal, you know, your particular unit may not be worth very much in and of itself, you know. So then the discussion comes well, is it worth putting the money into this, uh, given that the actual units are not worth very much and uh, uh, the value of the repair, shall we say, is approaching the value of the entire property anyway? Right, so is this good money after bad? Really, uh, another simpler uh, situation is that um, an older building is now in a very lucrative location. You know, location, location, location. Right? Uh, right. If you're in uh, Coal Harbor or English Bay or Metro Town or um, uh, you know along a main corridor near a SkyTrain station, those kind of things 
you know, uh, the theory goes that the developers would be very interested in buying those properties because that would be in line with the city's idea of densification. That if you put people in places where they can walk to work or get to work via transit and what have you, if they're near services, uh, then that's a very efficient way of using the land and densifying the city without reducing people's quality of life. Um, so those kind of locations where it might be just a, you know, a four-up wooden building with 25 units in it that could be knocked down and a 40-story tower put in its place, those kind of folks are are thinking that a winding up could be a lottery ticket for them, that the developer is going to come along and offer them a huge amount of money over their appraised value for their units, and uh, and they'll make a fortune and, and get away like thieves, you know. So those, those are probably the two main reasons that the, these things um, even crop up. There are other buildings that are not even thinking about it, and simply the developers themselves identify them as locations that they would like to have, and so the developers will approach them. Right. Um, but those are the main reasons. And how are it's not, obviously those are two pretty different reasons. But can you speak to how people are generally compensated in this process, and and what factors determine that compensation? Uh, yes, certainly. I mean, the the process from the developer's point of view, of course, is a sort of a cost-benefit analysis. You know, they will they will come in and uh, do some of their own due diligence about you know what is possible, what the feasibility study, if you will. You know, what could we build here? What are the engineering issues, the construction issues we may have? What kind of costs are we going to incur? Therefore, you know, in round numbers, what are, <clears throat> what are our dollars per square foot going to be? Therefore, how much can we afford to offer um, to the owners to buy the land in the first place, right? So there's many, many things that go into that math um, because you can appreciate, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're buying um, a huge piece of property that's got 20 townhouses on it and there's lots of room to maneuver in between times, that's a fairly easy um, demolition process compared to uh, a 20-story tower already downtown that needs to be demolished first very carefully before you then rebuild, right? So mm -hmm. whatever those costs will be will vary enormously um, for the developers coming in. So they they tend to do their math fairly carefully to make sure that they've got plenty of room for unforeseen contingencies, you know? And of course, they've got to deal with the city and all those other somewhat unknowns uh, along the way. So from their end, that's a, a pretty careful piece of due diligence and math. And I'm sure they they make their offers with a fairly healthy buffer between what they're offering and what you know uh, what they might actually be able to afford. For owners, um, I think there's a huge misconception in the market uh, at the moment. I think there are many owners who think that because the Vancouver market is skyrocketing and continues to do so, that uh, there's an endless supply of money and that developers will be, you know, like investors during the the dot-com era that they just put money into anything without thinking, you know? <laughs> um, and <laughs> I can assure them that it's not that way. <laughs> and the developers are very, very careful. I think 
if if I could come up with a rule of thumb, which will probably immediately have ten thousand exceptions to it, um, but probably owners are only going to look at a time and a half kind of um, appraisal from a developer to buy their unit. So if the unit is worth, shall we say, on paper five hundred thousand dollars, they might get an offer for seven fifty or something mm. like that. Very interesting. Uh, but they're not they're not going to get you know two and three times the value of their property. Uh, unless there's some really exceptional circumstances that might uh, provide for that eventuality, but you know, as I say, for the, from the developer's point of view, it's a matter of pure math, and uh, and they know what their upper limits are, and they're not going to go past it because uh, they won't make any money otherwise. Right, right. So, <clears throat> Phil, so it it sounds to me like there's a lot of moving parts here. How long do these typically take? Yes, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Uh, it's very rare that they happen quickly. Uh, very rare. Uh, you're, I think you're, it's fair to say you're probably talking months and years rather than weeks and months. Um, mm -hmm. Now, so what has happened is when the legislation changed, people thought that that was going to create this huge flood of uh, buildings being offered for sale, basically, because the owners were going to you know, voluntarily go through the 80% rule and uh, wind up and ha have a property for sale, and it would be sold on the open market. Um, that has not happened, and I think a lot of buildings have thought about it as an option, and they may have even done some initial investigation. Uh, but when it comes down to it, the flip side of this, of course, is that this is still people's homes that we're talking about. And if they agree to sell, what are they going to do next, right? And the trouble in the rising market for these folks is that even if they do get a premium over what their, their place might otherwise be appraised at, that does not mean that they automatically uh, can move into the new building next door mm -hmm. um, because they've got enough money to do it. It's often the case that even with a premium on an older building, they've not got enough money to stay in their own neighborhood. So suddenly you're talking about not only losing your home, but probably having to go to a completely different part of the city, if not even out of the city, right? right. So that sort of more emotional quotient, I think, puts the brakes on a little bit. And then it, what has happened is somebody has suggested this, a little bit of due diligence has, has been put forward. Uh, some people get very excited about the proposal, others get very nervous, and then a developer comes in and makes a proposal, and then people either are swayed or they're hardened against it, and then the developer is left with this difficult position of whether he wants to get involved with the politics of trying to convince everybody um, to sell. Mm -hmm. um, and what I've noticed um, is some developers of tried to do that and it's become very time expensive to them so they've become somewhat resistant to even entering into that process so they're basically saying don't come and talk to me until you've got the vote in place basically uh, or conversely uh, some um, developers have taken matters into their own hands and they've simply started to go to the owners individually and are buying them out one by one because they can then negotiate with them individually and, and, and be sure that they're getting title uh, for each of the units, you see. And then I guess the theory will be that once they reach that 80% mark themselves, 
they can bring on the vote for the dissolution and and uh, move it forward that way. In the meantime, of course, uh, presuming there's no restriction on rentals, um, the developer can be a landlord uh, for folks in the building, right? So it, it takes off some of the time pressure for the developer. They, yes, they have to outlay some capital, but they've got a cash flow as well while they negotiate with the other owners. Can you, uh, Phil, maybe speak a little bit to the the offer process? So typically, are, by the time that the strata has actually agreed upon selling, it, are developers usually bringing conditional offers? And if so, I mean, I would imagine they would be subject to some form of a feasibility study. Um, but can you give us a sense of the duration that these contracts are, um, are conditional? Uh, yes, that's usually... Um not an endless process because um, you can imagine from a developer's point of view, um, if they think there's some possibilities, um, they want to get in there and have a good look at it, go away and do their sums and then either lock it up or move along, right? Um, So I've seen that process be no more than 30 days in some instances. I think it's probably more usual to say, you know, three to six months maybe, so that there can be a sense of the developer getting to know the strata, the strata getting to know them, talking about what might be possible, and then you know getting some sense that the ownership is interested, and then investing the time in the due diligence because obviously you know that's actual expenditure uh, for the the owner, uh, sort of owner developer to uh, um, in you know invest in. in a proper investigation process. So um, some of them are much more step-by-step like that. Uh, the, The trouble comes is even if it gets to the point where the developer has got a solid proposal, um, is then it's a bit, uh, going back to a kind of herding cats uh, mentality. You're not dealing with a limited liability corporation that basically is driven by its board of directors and they can make uh, decisions that they think are in the best interests of the shareholders kind of thing. The Strata Council does a lot of those kind of roles, but the actual decision-making power lies with the shareholders, if you will, with each individual owners. So that's where the process can grind to a halt. If you've got a certain number of people who are just simply saying no because they simply don't want to do this, then you're already in trouble. So that's where the the 80% rule that is new is supposed to help. If you get to that point where 80% of the owners are convinced this is a good idea, then the new rules say, okay, uh, clearly at that point, there's there's a potential for a sale here. You now need to prepare the materials, explain why it's a good idea, and go and see a judge and convince a judge that it's in the best interest of all the owners, including the 20% who don't think it's a great idea, that it is a good idea, and that it's more beneficial than not, shall we say, that this place be wound up rather than it be continued as it is. So that's the bit that can be decisive in terms of that negotiation process, you know, right. is ultimately there has to be a judge involved. And and Phil, just generally in your experience, um, at the end of one of these long drawn out processes, are, are most people happy, upset? Is it kind of a mixed bag? Um, Yes, it's probably true to say there's always a mixed bag, but I think it's also true to say that the judges will take a decision like this very seriously, 
because they're aware at law that the idea of a sort of an expropriation of someone's property is a significant remedy at law. You, you know, a judge would consider that a draconian measure mm-hmm. and so would be very hesitant to simply order it just as a matter of course, right? So if it gets to that point and you've already got, let's say, 85% of the ownership who thinks it's a good idea and that you can put together materials that say, this is why it's a good idea. And I saw one done once where the I think the proposal for the purchase was something like $35 million or something was the purchase price. Otherwise, the ownership was looking at about a $10 million repair bill. And the entire populace of this strata, it was out in the valley, you know, didn't think they could raise half of that money uh, themselves. So there was a real potential that if they were going to have to repair, that many of the owners were going to lose their homes in any event because they wouldn't be able to pay the levy Mm -hmm. to repair the building. So, you know, in that situation, the judge looked at that and said, well, clearly, um, if we don't wind this up, there's a lot of people going to be very badly prejudiced by this situation. And so, you know, on a balance of probabilities, it's far more helpful that we wind this place up and give everybody a fairly big check than it is for us to say, well, no, it's more important you stay in your own home because your own home is apparently falling down around about (laughs) you. So no loss there, you know. So, but of course, what's interesting is like the more social and personal elements of this, you know, uh, you'll often find that obviously the investor owners, they don't mind because they're getting a big return on their investment. They don't mind selling Mm -hmm. or the younger folks won't mind selling because they can do something different and they've got time to reestablish themselves somewhere else. But the older folks in the building who perhaps have been there since the place was built, they will be often very resistant because they don't want to have to make a change. They anticipated living here until they either had to go into care or they died. So it's a big trauma for older folks who just never really thought that they would be forced to move, you know. So that's more some of the non-legal reasons why this becomes difficult for some people, you know. Right. So you mentioned investors there um, and talking about the trauma for some of these people. This question is maybe uh, misplaced. It's insensitive. It's insensitive. It's insensitive. But uh, Phil, uh, thinking about the future of of strata windups here, a lot of the people that listen to our show are investors. In your experience, would you be focusing on, on certain areas or certain buildings and seeing this as an investment opportunity? Um, it is if it's as long as you've got a long term view, right? There are many, many stratas that were built back in the 60s and 70s that were, I mean, reasonably well built in their time, but they're, you know, the four up wooden building or the, the townhouses often that are quite low density. Those kind of places, um, I think they're very attractive um, to developers because if there is extra green space, shall we call it, amongst townhouses, that gives a developer a lot more FSR, floor space ratio, to deal with the city to be able to redevelop at a much higher density without running afoul of, you know, nimbyism or, you know, somehow overburdening the land necessarily, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, understand that if you buy one of these townhouses and rent it out, it could happily be years um, right. until anything happens. So you've got to be 
as an investor, you've got to look at it and say, okay, as a standalone, simply as a rental, does this make sense? And if it does, um, because perhaps it's you know somewhat dilapidated, shall we say, and so you know it needs work. Clearly, the two sides to that: one, it makes it you know potential for a wind up, but also once you become the owner, you might be slapped with the special levy to fix it. You know, right. of course. <laughs> um, so you've got to think about that math pretty carefully. It's got to be okay. What's what's my return on investment month to month here? And am I able to put away contingency fees or, or, or funds um, just in case this doesn't go the way I think it's going to go? You know, um, so that that makes it a fairly risky investment. You know, you, you'd need to be fairly certain that you were willing to ride out that storm. If you know, for example, it, it did go that way and there was a huge levy and you know the buildings had to be ripped apart and what have you, it is entirely possible that the investor landlord at that point, even if they were going to continue to rent, would be in a position to apply to the residential tenancy board for an increase in rent because of the huge renovation. And or, you know, obviously they'd have a much more saleable asset if it was repaired. You know, and often we've seen big special levies to deal with a leaky condo and and you put in a twenty thousand dollars to a unit and the value increases a hundred thousand dollars. Right. You know, so uh, there is some real value there, right? But again, you don't know what's going to happen because when you buy into a strata, as I say, you've got to get along with a hundred people, not just your wife, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we all know how easy that is. Right, right. (laughs) uh, Just a final question for you here, Phil, but we're seeing this happen a lot in the West End. Uh, We're seeing it happen, you know, in other parts of Vancouver right now. Are there any areas that you're seeing kind of that are more active for strata dissolutions right now? Um, no, I wouldn't say it's per area. I think I think the things to pay attention to are the size of the parcel of land that you're talking about. Because as I say, if there's that room to get extra FSR, yeah. that's very attractive to a developer. Also, I think there's, you know, we use the term often in real estate circles of gentrification, mm-hmm. right? Um, that areas that are on the edge of gentrification are also places to think about. Um, And then the relative markets that you're dealing with. So downtown, the West End or what have you, we all know you're paying a bajillion dollars a square foot down here. Right. So the risk is higher, but the potential rewards are equally higher if you get the permission from the the city to build another, you know, 50-story tower, shall we say. Uh, Whereas, you know, out in Coquitlam, where now... You know, the SkyTrain is now out there. Now, the prices have already skyrocketed, but there's still far more room out there than there is downtown um, for potential redevelopment, right? So is that kind of idea of looking at the relative markets and saying, you know, where are the places where there's good reason to build here, but maybe I don't have that initial capital outlay that I would have in the obvious places, you know, to, to knock down the old building in Cole Harbor, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm going to pay millions like the, 
you know, I'm sure you heard about the the gas station that was sold, right? Right, seventy <laughs> yeah. odd million dollars, right? Right, right. <laughs> you, you've got to have very deep pockets to be doing that kind of thing. Whereas a gas station, I imagine in Coquitlam, doesn't go quite for that dollar value, right? <laughs> it was a it was a busy gas station, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. The only one. Um, yeah, well, that's great. So look for underbuilt parcels of land in uh, future areas. Good advice. Um, so, Variety. Uh, so, Phil, uh, we have this segment called the Five Wire. Can you stick around for that? Surely. Okay. So, uh, first question: what's your uh, What's your favorite area in Vancouver? Favorite area? Oh my goodness gracious! You know what? I'll tell you something. Sorry to drag this out, but I've noticed there are two sorts of Vancouverites. And tell me if you've seen <laughs> this yourself. There are people who are citizens of this whole city who love all sorts of different parts of the greater Vancouver area. And there are other Vancouverites who can't imagine the world outside of the two city blocks that they live in, you know? (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So I very much consider myself um, part of the former uh, because we've lived in, I think, uh, four or five different municipalities in the greater Vancouver area. Um, But the majority of that time, we did live um, in North Vancouver. So I do have a special place in my heart for North Vancouver, I would say. (laughs) And this uh, question, you probably don't get out that much depending on the age of your your kids here, but uh, favorite bar or restaurant? (laughs) Yes, I haven't been out since 1986. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the disco um, in, on Seymour. Yeah, yeah. Yes, no, that's right, exactly. <laughs> well, um, I, I'll say I'll sell the railway then, probably, oh, and, nice. uh, and Dunsmuir, just because it's, it's an old, familiar place. What can I that's, tell you? That's a, that's a great one. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Uh, downtown Penthouse or Westside Mansion? Oh, uh, Westside Mansion. That was easy. Uh, where do you take someone from out of town when they first arrive? Oh, gosh. Um, well, actually, uh, one of our favorite places we, when we lived in North Ham particularly uh, was to go to the dam, you know, and just below Grouse there and uh, and show everybody the splendor of our city, both natural and uh, man-made, you know. So right. that definitely a spot. Up Grouse is another one, of course. Perfect. But and, I, yeah, many, many places. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and final question, Ben Matlock or Perry Mason? <laughs> oh, well, I think Perry Mason. Okay. <laughs> I think Perry Mason. <laughs> okay. so, so, uh, so, Phil, how can people find out more about uh, the Access Law Group and yourself? Uh, certainly. Um, accesslaw.ca is our website, um, and people can uh, get on there and see a little bit about each of our lawyers. There's now uh, four of us here who do almost exclusively strata law. Um, and then uh, you can get a hold of me directly uh, at pdugan at accesslaw.ca, p-d-o-u-g-a-n at accesslaw.ca, just as it's spelt ordinarily. Fantastic. Well, well, thanks so much, Phil, for your time. Uh, that was a fantastic conversation, super interesting and useful, and uh, we appreciate great. your time. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Uh, take care. Have a great day. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Strata lawyer Phil Dugan. 
Phil Dugan, super enjoyable to talk to. Uh, really, a lot uh, of positive energy there. No kidding. No kidding. He's a friendly guy for sure, and he knows a ton. Yeah. No, so uh, that very articulate and was able to uh, explain everything. And I feel like I have a way better understanding about these strategies. Yeah, solutions. and you know what? We pride ourselves in finding opportunities. Here's an opportunity for lawyers: strata law. Yeah. No I mean, kidding. Although don't, <laughs> maybe don't say that. Although Phil seemed to point to that. Yeah, I know. There's a real gap in the, but you know what? I think he's right. Could you imagine dealing it with. It would, would be it's, challenging. It's, and this is why we screen strata documents and talk about the culture of a building. Because, I mean, it, it can be tough living with people. Even it can be tough living with neighbors, even in a detached house, never mind sharing a wall with someone. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Do you know what I mean? So anyways, Matt, uh, what else we got? Well, we should say once again here. We got a new website. Yeah, exactly. Go check out our new site, VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com and uh, click the green button you want to hire us. Click the orange button if you want to sign up for private client services. And Matt, what is PCS? Yeah, well, we've been talking about private client services for a while. It's the best real estate research tool out there. You're going to get listings 36 to 72 hours in advance of public MLS. You're going to see sold prices. It has a map feature. It's basically, you know, all the information. It's your information own that, portfolio right in front of you. Is that what it is? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's, and it has realtor-level information. That's It does uh, have realtor-level information. If you're not using private client services, you are standing still while the rest of us are floating by, backstroking by. <laughs> um, and uh, it is. And the, now it's easier to get because it's a big button on our website. If you cannot find PCS of, now, it's on you, right? I'm colorblind. What color is okay. it? Okay, it's, it's orange. But uh, Matt, uh, last but not least, if you want to be kept in the loop about pre-sale opportunities and also A- assignment upcoming, opportunities. upcoming episodes, join our email list. It's the blue button. Or you can just get in touch. Matt, how can people reach you? That may be the easiest way. I love hearing from people. 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And Brady D? Braden at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. And that's with a Y. Right in the middle. Right. All right, guys. Take care. Have a good week. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. This podcast is sponsored by Common Ground Consulting. Are you developing in the Lower Mainland? Common Ground Consulting is a development management and consulting company with experience in single family, townhouses, multifamily, and commercial developments. What I love about Common Ground, Adam, is they manage the whole development process from due diligence and feasibility reports for initial purchase of land to completing rezoning, development permits, and building permits. They streamline the whole process with strong relationships with sub-consultants and municipalities and a deep understanding of all city requirements. Common Ground Consulting. Feasibility and efficiency prioritized every step of the way. Learn more at commonground-consulting.com or 604-807-6419.
We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.